It is fully appropriate we have this gospel passage uh, this weekend as we gather for uh, two reasons as far as I can count. Uh, One is that uh, two weeks ago we gathered and we celebrated Epiphany, having been moved from January 6th to to, uh, we celebrated it the second this year. And Epiphany uh, is the celebration, of course, of the wise men as we celebrated that day, but also the uh, baptism of the Lord that we celebrated last week and the wedding feast at Cana that we hear about this week because all, all three have to do with Jesus manifesting himself to the nations, manifesting himself as a human being, uh, God made man, but a human being and identifying himself as our Savior and then his first miracle that we hear, of course. The other reason, and perhaps with it being so cold, is appropriate for us to think about. Uh, There is a proverb that says, wine gives warmth to a man's heart. So think about lots and lots of wine, unless you're alcoholic, please. Uh, uh, Not making fun of uh, somebody with alcoholism as a problem. But there's, uh, I want you to do some math with me. Of course, I always do the math. Six stone jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So let's take an average of 25. That's 150 gallons of wine. Now that sounds like a lot until we convert that into maybe bottles. Regular wine bottles are 750 milliliters. So he's produced from water about 800 bottles of wine. I thought about singing 800 bottles of wine on the wall, 800 bottles. <laughs> 800 bottles of wine. He has, more, he has produced more wine than most wine shops have in stock. This is an overabundance of wine. And we don't know at what part of the, the wedding feast that this occurred, that they ran out of wine. Uh, wedding feasts in the days of Jesus were sometimes three days, sometimes longer. The more uh, wealthy the, uh, the bride or groom's family was, the, the more, the longer it was. But doing the math, 800 bottles of wine is serving a lot of people for a long time. And it all begins because the Blessed Mother recognizes they have no wine. This would have been a major embarrassment to the bridegroom, the bride, their family, to have run out. Again, we don't know when, maybe towards the end, maybe it was uh, towards the middle. Hopefully it wasn't the beginning. And if they did run out at the beginning, hopefully it was because somebody did, did something stupid like break all the amphora that held the wine. But she, the Blessed Mother, they have no wine. And she goes to Jesus and says, they, they have no wine. And he replies in a reply that most of us, and I know I myself, I would not be standing before you if I had said this to my mother. Or I'd probably be spitting bubbles yet because a few, I'm the only child of my, uh, my brothers or brother or sisters that ever was fed soap. Uh, and uh, I don't say that word anymore. But most of us would not be able to respond. And and because it sounds so odd to our ear, maybe there's something for us to reflect on here. Woman, what is your concern? 
how does your concern affect me? Because Jesus is obedient to his parents. Jesus is sinless. So this cannot be uh, just a a direct, I'm not going to help them, but something, uh, perhaps we could see this as an invitation. And we hear that, my hour has not yet come. And we remember perhaps the other time Jesus calls his mother woman in the Gospel of John. And that is, of course, at the foot of the cross. As he sees his mother standing at the foot of the cross, he says to her, woman, behold your son. Son, as he turns to John, the beloved, behold your mother. Not only that, but it's a connection as Mary, as the new Eve woman. And yet, he recognizes that his hour has not yet come, but it's not the fullness of the hour that she's asking for. And so she responds, do whatever he tells you. I I don't know if I would have been a server. I don't know what I would have done. Uh, Well, who do I listen to? Do do I listen to his mother who's saying, or do I listen to Jesus who says, I'm not going to, no. Of course, Jesus tells them what to do. And he tells them in such a way that we should be able to listen a little bit harder. Six ceremonial stone jars. Stone does not become impure. It remains pure. And this water was used for ceremonial washings, a very important part in the Jewish law and Jewish custom, a part that was prescribed by Moses himself. Well, because God had told Moses to prescribe it. And here Jesus is asking them to fill those jars again, to fill them to the top, and to simply take some of the water out and give it to the head waiter. Now, if I would have been the server, that would have been, you want me to give him water? Well, how is that going to fix anything? And the head waiter tastes it, and the servers are dumbfounded. They cannot explain what happened. And the head waiter says something that we should listen to. Everyone serves good wine first. And when people are a little drunk, that's what he's saying, then they bring out the inferior wine. The senses are a little dulled. They won't catch that there's a little inferior wine out here and a cheaper wine. This is the way it's done. And yet... This bridegroom saved the best wine for last. He's not talking just about the water that became wine. And he's not talking to just the bridegroom. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ himself does. That Jesus Christ is the bridegroom who has saved the very best for last. That when his time is fulfilled, and that's fulfilled on the cross, he gives something better than had ever been given before. He gives, as we hear in John's prologue, grace in place of grace. He gives us grace in place of grace that what was in the Old Testament was good. But what is given now, through his cross, through his death, through his resurrection, is better. In fact, the best 
that God has saved the very best for last. And not only that, but through his death and resurrection, he sends the Holy Spirit. And consider that first, or the descent of the Holy Spirit on that Pentecost, the first Pentecost after Jesus' death and resurrection. The Spirit comes upon them as tongues of fire. Let's consider that a brief moment as my fingers are cold. He descends, the Spirit descends on them with tongues of fire, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They all begin speaking, and everyone hears their own native language in a, in a, in a way that they would not expect. And everyone is saying, oh, they're drunk. They're drunk on the Holy Spirit. And St. Peter says, we're not drunk, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And he preaches the gospel to them, and thousands are baptized that day. The God through Jesus' death and resurrection, has given us a share in the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, as we hear in the second reading, gives us gifts. Gifts not for ourselves. Sometimes we think, isn't it wonderful? God has given me this particular gift, whatever it is, and, 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 and we hoard it and we use it for ourselves. Well, that isn't what a gift is for. If you want to imagine uh, uh, the Holy Spirit gives fruits to a fruit tree that produces fruit for only itself is not a very good fruit tree. There's two reasons a fruit tree produces fruit. One is to spread the seeds, and the other because God has given it as nourishment. The fruit is nourishment to human beings and to wildlife. We too are given gifts not for ourselves, but to spread the gospel and to nourish others. And we can do that only if we receive the new wine that Jesus gives. Perhaps we see the water that we received at baptism transformed into the new wine of the Spirit. That we live this grace and know that it's abundant, more than abundant. It's more than we can use in a lifetime. Thank God for that. It's much more than 800 bottles of wine. No matter what metric we use, God has given us a superabundance of grace in place of grace, more than we can expect, more than we deserve, simply because he loves us.